Good morning. My name is Scott, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> very, very honored to be a member of this fellowship and haven't been asked to share. And I'm touched. I sat here and cried. Maybe you get my heart stood on my head today. I really hope so. I, I'd like to thank everybody who was involved in having Miss Linda. It's beautiful. Y'all have treated They should find out in my home group how to treat me. <laughs> Is that right? They're, um... I, I think, really, uh, I'm going to make some notes, maybe. Uh, I think that would be good. I certainly enjoyed Luke last night. Uh, has touched our lives a number of times. And, uh, and for those of you, by the way, I, I want to say this before I forget. Um, if there are any AA members here who have never been to an Al-Anon speaker meeting and were not planned to come today, and forgive me for bragging on my wife, but I want to tell you how good her Al-Anon program is. Her Al-Anon program is so good that I have a sign on my desk that says, Ask Linda. <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's to remind me that if I want to know what this woman thinks about something I'm about to say or do, I have to ask her. Because I'm not a husband in training anymore. Okay? Then for you alcoholics who are married to Alanon, did you ever sit in a meeting, a speaker meeting, and, and she's nudging you, and you get this, you get this? Come this afternoon, hear her. You can do that back. So anyway, that, that's... That's, that's the end of my ad. Uh, I'm a member of, uh, of the backroom group in Nashville, Tennessee. It's my home group and uh, neat group. I, uh, I like to open my talks with a quotation that I'm told is from Lois Wilson, who was asked one time, what did she do in the moment of silence before the serenity prayer? And she said, I invite God to the meeting. That was powerful for me. And uh, shortly, I'm going to ask for another moment of silence. But I ask you a question for anybody here sober less than 90 days? I'm not even going to ask for your name. Is anybody... No? Okay. Um, sometimes I speak at places where there are people and they don't have a God or they got one they're afraid of or something's not working for them. And um, I offer them to borrow mine, and I make that offer now. Borrow mine for this time where to, uh, if you've got something that's not working for you, if you're unsure, just as an experiment. Nobody will even know if you try it, just to kind of see what happens. You can address him as the God of Scott's limited understanding. <laughs> Might as well get off telling him the truth. And... Uh, and just ask him, what I'm going to ask everyone to do is to ask God to fill this room with love and to bless us with open hearts. Um, we talk in our recovery programs about the language of the heart. I'm learning to lay down the language of the gutter, pick up the language of the heart. I find them to be quite different. And I can't report perfection, but I can report tremendous progress. And uh, to ask God to join us to fill this room with love and bless us all with open hearts, you that you may hear through yours, and hopefully, God, that he would speak through mine, or in the worst case, that I would speak through mine. So if y'all would humor me, let's have a few moments and ask God to join us to fill the room with love. And it takes all the heat off of me, I think. You know, I mean, this, this is a bad talk. We don't know whose fault it was. Uh, I was asked to tell my story here. I found the directions in the big book on page 29. It says, each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he establishes a relationship with God. So that, I suppose, is supposed to be my subject. I didn't begin my life that way. I began life a victim of the delusion that I could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only I managed well. <laughs> Recognize that? It's on page 61. I thought if I could get what I wanted, it would make me happy. I, I want to introduce myself and say my name is Scott and I have a learning disability known as alcoholism. <laughs> I mean, I just wasn't getting it. I don't know how many times I got what I wanted. It was consistent. I frequently got what I wanted, but I wasn't happy. But I didn't notice that. I was still a victim of that false belief that if I could get something else that I wanted, it would make me happy. I failed to notice that it never did. I, uh, I started drinking the summer I turned 18. I went to play a uh, men's school at that time. It's co-ed now called Suwannee, owned by the uh, Southern Episcopal Diocese. And uh, 
I had, had not been a drinker. I think my dad was probably one of us. And he had told me when I was maybe 11 or 12, he said, there's beer in the refrigerator. Get one when you want it. And he said, one of these days, you're going to want to get drunk for your very first time. And when that day comes, come to me. Tell me what you want to drink. I will buy it. And we will sit in the living room and get drunk for your first time together. And that, and that offer was good, and I knew it. And so as you can clearly see, it wasn't against the rules for me to drink. Therefore, I didn't drink. <laughs> now, you followed that, didn't you? Okay. Don't try to explain that to your neighbor when you get home. So uh, anyway, I got out with the boys the first time, and uh, they were drinking beer, so I started drinking beer. And somewhere between the first sip of that first one, and I think it happened probably by the bottom of the second one, certainly no, more, no further than the third beer, it happened. And you know what I mean. I just got taller. Just boom. I, did anybody else get taller? Come on now. Where are you? Who got taller? Just that few? Come on now. I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk with you. Play with me, all right? How about better looking? Did you get better looking? Yes, all right. A little epidemic of that. My, it cured my acne. I, I'm surprised they don't use it on the advertisements on TV. You know, Budweiser cures acne. It, of course, it was back the next morning, but it cured it that night. And, um, and it made me a brilliant conversation. Did it lubricate your lips? Anybody? Uh, a little something to say? Uh-huh. How about this one? Expert on many subjects. <laughs> oh, 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 I had a few experts. Yeah? Okay. That's good. How about, uh, you can get two hands if you need to. Fantastic dancer. <laughs> Some dancers. Uh-huh. You know what the biggest thing it did for me, though? Is it made me feel like I was as good as everybody else. I had never felt that way in my whole life. As a very small boy, and I don't know when, but it, it predates my memory, I, be, I was convinced that I wasn't as good as everyone else. I was somehow defective in some way that could not be repaired, and, uh, and that I would never, ever be as good as anyone else, and that nothing I ever did could ever measure up to what anyone else could ever do. And if you all ever found out who I was, you wouldn't want me around. And I, became, and I believed that. That wasn't a thought, it was a belief. And uh, I became an actor at that point. And my act was that I pretended to be whoever I thought the people immediately in front of me wanted me to be. Always. I didn't always know, but I, but I had plenty of acts. You know, if this first one wasn't working, we can change. And uh, toward the end of my drinking, I, had, uh, I was a sales rep, and I had customers in one town in Tennessee that were very, very serious religious people. And they knew a pretty religious me. Forty miles away in another town, there were some guys who liked to have customer, like to have a good time on Friday night, and they knew Friday night me. Then there was the guys in the pool room where I drank and bought my dope, and they knew that me. And then there were neighbors, and they knew that one. And I had business partners, and they knew that one. I had neighbors, and I had family, and I had, and I was a different guy to everybody. And the biggest fear in my life was that people from different parts of my life would be together in the same place at the same time. How would I act, right? Because I'm act all the time. I've been an act so long, I don't have the faintest notion who stands behind the last mask. I knew nothing about who I was. Nothing. Because I was always this act. So I get out with the boys this first time, and I get to drink in the Sterling beer. Do they have Sterling beer here? It was awful. It was, uh, it was a dollar a gallon is what it was. <laughs> and for those of you who are old enough to remember, I'll tell you what year that was. With, with Tennessee state sales tax, it was a dollar two. Okay, it's been quite a while. And... Uh, when, when I got, by the time I got to the bottom of that third beer, all of a sudden, all that had changed. And we had gone from 
I'm afraid y'all will find out who I am and not allow me to hang out with you, to y'all was pretty lucky I was there. <laughs> and that is an entire psychic change. And that was my first one. And uh, I'll skip through it kind of quickly for you. I zipped through a four-year college in five years and two summer schools. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, brothers. Yes, sisters. Yes. And uh, I was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. Went to Valdosta, Georgia to Air Force pilot training. I'm talking a little bit about what it was like to be a drunken pilot. Anybody flying home from here? I guess beat this. Huh? Good. Well, this will put you at peace. Uh, yeah, most, I, I bet everybody saw the movie Top Gun. Uh, and I'm going to tell you something about Top Gun. At the beginning of the movie and at the end, they're having dog fights with MiGs. Remember that? You didn't actually think the Russian government loaned Hollywood MiGs, did you? I'm sorry to have to do this to you. Uh, that airplane was not a MiG. That was a T-38. I flew it for about six months. It's a high-performance aircraft. High-performance means faster than the speed of sound uh, after burning jet engines. It was stressed for seven and a half positive Gs and about four and a half negative. It would go from brake release on the runway to 40,000 feet in three and a half minutes. And we did that regularly. Uh, we called it, it would, the ones you saw in the movie were black, the ones we flew were white. We called the plane the white rocket. And that's what it was, a rocket ride. Um, it, would, it would do a loop, which is a, you know, one of these on the horizon. The entry airspeed's about 550 miles an hour, and you pull up at five Gs. You're, you're, you're doing one G right now, it's force of gravity. At one G, a 200-pound man weighs 200 pounds. At five Gs, a 200-pound man weighs 1,000 pounds. That's what that means. So everything on you weighs times five. At 10,000 feet, you pull up at five Gs, your wings level inverted at 20,000 feet. It takes 10,000 feet to pull this plane over on its back. You lose 8,000 feet coming down the backside. Total elapsed time on that full maneuver is under 25 seconds. The roll rate on this airplane, if you use maximum deflection on the stick, it will roll in excess of 420 degrees a second. That is, yeah, more than once around every second. Let me tell you something. Your eyeballs won't track that if you're sober. <laughs> you ain't watching that. And I, I tell you all, all that about that airplane for two reasons. The first one, of course, is to impress you. <laughs> you, I guess. The, uh, the second one is because it tells the story of my alcoholism so well, because I come down from a day of flying this airplane, and I'm going to head over to the officer's club about 5.30. Now, this is my alcoholism. I, I went out and got drunk intentionally a lot. Frequently, going out to get drunk, that's the mission, I'm heading to do it. But I also used to get drunk by mistake. Did you ever just kind of take drunk? Didn't really, didn't really mean to, and just sort of, it could have happened to anybody. Uh, okay, so I'm heading over to the club this night, about 5.30 in the afternoon, and do not plan to get drunk. That is not the plan. Um, would y'all be willing to do audience participation with me? Let's try that again. Would you be willing to do audience participation? Yeah. yeah. Very good. When I point, fill in the blank. You know all the answers. You ready? Okay. Walk into the club about 5.30 and plan to have one beer, no more than two. Right. Okay, Alan Ons, are you here? Where are you? I love you. God bless you. Uh, I'm convinced that there's a lot of sober alcoholics who got that way because Alan Ons helped you get too healthy to continue to help one of us stay sick. All right, and I mean that with all my heart. I honor you, but I'm fixing folks some fun at you. But I want you to know I love you first, okay? 
You can play this game that we're playing here also. You know all the lines. This is what you heard on the phone. Okay? And you believed it again. That's why you're here. Okay? The ones that only believed that a couple of times and went running, they don't have to come to Illinois. That's right. Okay, I might have one beer, no more than... Should be home by 6.30, no later than... But what happens is that somewhere between the first sip of the first beer and the bottom of the second one, the phenomenon of craving that Dr. Stilkworth talks about, in the doctor's opinion, happens for me. And I have an entire psychic change. And I do not get home by 7. As a matter of fact, I leave the officer's club at exactly 1 o'clock in the morning because they... Okay. Drive home with a hand over one eye. Who knows why? Where are you? Come on, just that few? Only that few? I'm going to have to tell you then, just in case you don't make it. Okay, when you're driving drunk, if you'll put a hand over one eye, it'll keep that single center line from crossing itself. Okay? We don't know how it does that. And I was at that time married to my first wife. I would get home, and she had believed that stuff on the phone again. I'd get home and listen to her. 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 Oh, it's the worst part of a drunk. That was even worse than the next part. Can I see the hands of the pukers? <laughs> Is that all? Really? All right. Well, you, you will understand, but I thought the two most creative and important inventions of the 20th century were that little, that little half-moon shape of carpet they put around the commode for you to kneel on. <laughs> that was invented by one of our boys, you know. And that soft commode seat you could rest your head on, you kind of in between heaps. <laughs> Boy, and I'm in there doing it, too. And uh, I tell you, you guys confused me when I got to recovery. The first thing you did was lie to me. You told me I couldn't quit forever, and I knew that wasn't true. I had quit forever over 2,000 times. <laughs> I'm in there bringing it up, boy, quitting forever, and uh, praying what, uh, this is just me, I call it this. I, it's in one of the stories, actually, but they don't call it what I call it. This is, I call the pre-AA prayer. We'll do it together. I'll do the first second. You ready? God, get me out of this. Yeah. Brush my teeth and go to bed. And it's now maybe 2.30 in the morning, something like that. I get up at 6. In that wondrous, wondrous fairyland, magical place between drunk and hungover. Remember? Yes, sir. Shower and shave, light suit and boots, sunglasses and hats, out to the air base. About 8 o'clock in the morning, maybe 7.30. I'm in that airplane I was telling you about. And we release the brakes and light the afterburners and take off. And today we're in a two-ship formation. And just after liftoff, I tuck under the leader's tail. And his afterburner's a little bit closer than that light. And we're going to be doing 500 knots, pulling. And I'm dying. I'm dying. I got a butcher knife stuck in right here that comes out the back. I was surprised my helmet went on over it. And... Uh, <laughs> My throat is raw from puking all that acid the night before. The eyelids are made out of sandpaper. I got a tremor in my hands. I got booze coming out of every pore. And the only thing that keeps me going is the sure and certain knowledge that I will never feel this way in a plane again. Because I quit last night forever in a minute with all my heart. And I'm hanging in there. I, I'm, I'm proud to tell you I finished second in that class. Air Force pilot training class, I finished second. But uh, what I just described to you, by the way, did you recognize it? That was willpower. Okay. That's what functional alcoholics have is willpower, boatloads of it. It's not a defense against this disease, but we got it. 
it's my sincere belief that they need to pass legislation and stop the earth people from saying willpower because they don't have any idea what it is. <laughs> they shouldn't be saying it. I think it's the reason they don't become alcoholics is they don't have the willpower for it. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Here's an example. A guy goes out on prom night. He drinks a uh, fifth of Jack Daniels. He pukes on his day's dress. He wrecks his car. He wakes up in the drunk tank. He says, I'm never doing that again. And he never does. Obvious lack of willpower. <laughs> I knew you'd understand that. Of course, there's one of their words we shouldn't use, too. Enough. Anyway, so I'm in this airplane, and I am absolutely dying. And we, we finish the day's missions, and they release us from the flight line about 5.30. And, uh, boy, I'm not going to get drunk tonight, I'll tell you that. No chance at all. I'm not well yet, but I was in my early 20s. My body's responding. And uh, absolutely not going to get drunk tonight, chance at all. But I think I'm going to go to the officer's club. I think I'll stop in and maybe have one beer, no more than... You should be home by 6.30, no later than... Leave the club at exactly one because they drive home with a handover one. Listen to... God, get me out of this. I think it's the largest group of pilots I ever talked to. You guys all knew about it, didn't you? <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again. And I was unable to look into the past all the way to yesterday <laughs> and say, man, weren't you dying when you lit the afterburners yesterday morning and the day before and every day last week and every day last month? I, I could not say I was powerless and I was ignorant of the fact that I was powerless. I, uh, so I graduated second in my class. I'm very proud of that. I was stationed in Charleston, South Carolina for the first year or so. I flew, I was flying a C-141, which is a four-engine jet. I was all over the world, literally, and sent to uh, Vietnam in a uh, gunship. I flew my first four or five months of missions in the gunship. They phased that plane out and they left us in that airframe. I began to fly missions classified above top secret. Uh, at four o'clock one morning, and the story is still pretty fuzzy for me, I'm not sure. I thought that another pilot was supposed to fly my mission, but my crew was on that airplane. But anyway, I was so drunk, well, there's no way I could have driven the crew bus from the quarters to the flight line. We wouldn't. But I'm in the left seat of this airplane, and I'm planning to drive, and they can't get me out of there, and the biggest problem they got is I'm the commanding officer of everybody in sight. Now, that is a pro that's a real serious political problem. And I am just, I've got a full load on by my standards. So the co-pilot and I come to an agreement, and he says, if I ever tell you to let go, you'll let go. And I said, oh. And so we crank up the engines, and we're taxiing this thing, taxiing south. The tower sits in the middle. Runway's about two miles long, so when you get to the far end, you're a mile from the tower. My co-pilot is what pilots call inside. That means he's doing inside, inside the cockpit stuff, positioning switches, running the kind of thing. And I'm outside. I'm looking, and I'm driving this thing. And I'm taxiing this beast south, and I'm trying to be smooth on the controls. I've got my window open just in case I throw up. I can throw up out of the airplane. And I thought I was smart. I thought, look, aren't you sharp? I mean, look how smart you are. In case you puke, you can puke. Does it create, I'm about to ride with a drunken pilot. And how smart is that? Well, I couldn't see it then. I could see it. When we got to the end of the taxiway, I'm being real smooth on the controls so I don't jiggle my stomach. And I applied the brakes so smoothly that I did not stop the airplane. Taxi that bad baby right off of the taxiway out into the weeds. Off of the end of this taxiway. Okay? And if there had been a stump there, or a drainage ditch, 
or if there had been another plane taxiing behind mine, or if it had been four in the afternoon instead of four in the morning, because see, the tower's a mile away. They can't tell. They can't see that. Or if any man on that airplane had wanted me, you'd have somebody else talking tonight. I'd still be in Leavenworth. And I want to stop and tell you now that I have a passion for carrying this message into Korea. And uh, I've never been locked up. I have no arrest record. That's not a prerequisite for me. Not. And I have the high honor and privilege of serving on my home group's correctional committee. My home group is taking about 45 meetings a month into jails. And that's we're in treatment centers and halfway houses and Salvation Army stuff, too. That's just the correctional committee from my group. Uh, we also have a lot of people say, yeah, I can't tell you what it means to me. And I head up to me. And I'm just sitting there having lunch, minding my own business. Guy walks up and he says, you don't remember. And I apologize about shit, but I don't. And he said, you came into a prison I was in and you talked. And I heard what you said and I believe. And I'm doing what you said. And I'm never going to have to go back to prison. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't do that to take a bow. I do that to tell you that I want you to have the experience of feeling what I feel right now, just remembering that. What was that like for me sitting there? And that guy says, that this guy's on the street because I missed Monday. What a gift to me that is. I'm going to tell you something. Now. I'm, I'm going to be a little bit controversial a couple of times today. And this, If you're suffering from depression, who's taking meetings into jails and prisons? Where are you? Okay. Anybody else, if you're suffering from depression, get with one of these people and get into these jails. It'll knock out depression faster than prose. I guarantee you, and it doesn't require prescription in any of your head. I come out of that jail a foot off the ground with tears running down my face most of the time. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I get to go home and they, they stay there. It's because I've gone a little bit out of my way to maybe be a tool in the master. But I can't tell you what it means to me. But anyway, because I'm supposed to be there. So anyway, we, we went ahead and flew this mission. People have asked me, I'm going to go back to that, I was flying. People have asked me, how could you fly? <laughs> Don't take my word. I mean, next time you're out, have a look. It's huge, and there's not much up there. Observe that. So the trick when you're drunk and flying is to keep it in the sky part. <laughs> keep it in the sky part. Probably you want to... Well, one more piece of evidence and I'll move on. Everything you hit was on the ground, wasn't it? <laughs> Pretty obvious if you just think about it. I, uh, I found it necessary to, res to uh, resign my commission when I was uh, five years in. I was a captain. And, uh, and I was on the fast track. They loved me. But I had to walk away. I would go back to the job I had tonight. I had to walk away from it. Question of time before I was going to Alcoholism didn't take away my dreams. It took away any disease. I got a job as a traveling salesman. If you're not serious about staying, so my recommendation is before you get your next drink, interview, get yourself a job as a traveling salesman. <laughs> Bring you back to AA faster than any other form of work that I know of. And uh, I was traveling a couple of states on an expense account. Um, eventually became, a, yeah, became an independent manufacturer's representative in the summer of 1984. My business partner's wife was put into treatment for a Darvon addiction. He went through family week. Um, a few days later, he and I played a new game that was sweeping the country called Intervention. <laughs> Possibly some of you have played. And on June the 28th of 1984, uh, which was my belly button birthday, Liz. <laughs> and I make that point because that's the only thing I didn't have to change, okay? But that's also my sobriety date. I signed into a little treatment. And uh, the staff told me later I was probably the saddest looking human that ever came. 
And the reason was that I was the saddest human that ever came through the doors, because when they told me I couldn't drink Miller Lite or Scotch on the Rocks or use some of the alcohol substitutes that I was using by that time, I never thought I was going to have any more fun, right? Laugh out loud, enjoy a ball game or a weekend. That's what I believed. The book says stupid, boring, and glum. That's what I thought my life was going to be without it. I'd like to report that that has not been the case. And um, I want to talk a little bit about my experience. In the, uh, I wasn't sleeping, they say, on somebody who's on the mixture that I was on. Sometimes it'll take a year or so, you know, for your sleep to, to level out. If there's anybody new here, by the way, and you're having trouble sleeping, one of the great truths for me that I have learned is that some of what I know for sure and certain ain't so. I can show you five places in the book where it says words. And that's an important piece for me because I wonder how much of what I know for sure and certain today ain't so. So if anybody disagrees with anything I've got to say up here, I can't wait to hear from you. Not talk to you, but hear from you. Because I may learn something. That's happened to me in podium talks. People come and say, I disagree, and I've learned something. Because I'm convinced that some of what I know for sure isn't. So one of the things I knew for sure was that caffeine didn't affect me. <laughs> I knew that for sure and certain. I'm going to tell you a secret. If you pounded down a quart of scotch in five joints a day, it won't. <laughs> So anyway, I've got to be careful with about what I know for sure and certain. So I'm laying in this treatment center, and, and I don't sleep the first three nights. I don't sleep at all the first three nights. And I'm laying there this fourth night, and I'm not going to sleep. And some of you are probably aware of this. If you're not drinking, it stays dark a long time. Oh, it goes on and on. I can't believe how long it stays dark. And I can't leave the room. It's one of those lights out at 11, stay until 6.30 kind of thing. So I'm laying there in this bed, and a review of my life happened to me. I didn't do this. And it wasn't one of those instantaneous things, if you've talked to someone who's had a near death. It, this took several hours. And a review of my life happened in fairly minute detail. I had always given myself credit for my intention. And uh, my favorite intention, uh, I'm an amateur magician. I do rope. And I always intended to get a clown suit. And when I was on the road, instead of running the saloons, put on the clown suit, take the magic kit, go to a children's hospital, and do a show for the kids. Pretty great, huh? And I intended to do that for over 20 years. I thought I was a pretty fantastic guy, because, you know, one of these days, I was going to do that. Our third step talks about a decision. To me, the difference between the two, between an intention and a decision, is that an intention is followed by more intentions. A decision is followed by action. And this particular night when the review happened to me of my life, the intentions were gone. I couldn't see any of them. It's not as pretty without them. And I got to the place where I began to think about the single worst thing I've ever done. You may not have one, I do. I have a and I had always been able to stop it. A six-pack will knock that out. Three fast scotches will turn that baby. I can't get it stopped laying in this treatment center. And I don't know how long I lay there unable to stop the thoughts of what I did. And I reached what I call bottom. I hear us use the term, I don't see its definition. I'm going to tell you what it meant to me. For me, bottom wasn't on the physical. I had puked blood a couple of times. I'd been in trouble. None of those was bottom for me. I've seen plenty of guys incarcerated that aren't at bottom yet. For me, bottom was of the spirit. Bottom was in here. When I hated my gut so bad and detested who I was and what I'd done at a level where I was willing to pay any price and do anything not to be that man. For me, that was bottom. And at that point, I assume it was my spirit because this happened from my chest. These words never happened in my throat or in my head. Something in here screamed loudly to a God that I don't think I believed in. God forgive me, real loud inside. And I received his forgiveness. It's uh, 
Physically, it was like when you've had x-rays of your teeth taken, and when they finish, they lift that lead apron up off of you. That's what it felt like. I'm laying in this bed on my back with my eyes closed. I can see the entire... And all of a sudden, this heaviness that was on my whole body flew up off of me. Just boom. It, it literally went straight up, just flew off of me. I felt so light, I thought I might float up off the bed. I really thought I was going to float up off of it. And suddenly, there was this magnificent light shining just on me. And I knew in that instant that there was a God, that that God had the power to forgive me. And it may be that he never judged me. I don't know. But I can tell you that I received the forgiveness. And I lay there in the presence of that love. It was so powerful that if there had been any more, it would have physically hurt. It almost hurt. It felt so good. And I don't know how long I lay in his presence. I don't know of anything else that passed between us. And I lay there in his presence for a while after that. It may have been a few seconds. It might have been a couple hours. And uh, after that, I slept some. I want to read to you from Bill's story. This is from page 12. But soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors. I want to tell you it is my sincere and deep belief that I would not still be sober now if I had counted on that experience. On the other things I'm going to talk about today, I don't for me. That was only a cornerstone. I think it was given to me because I was hanging over. Anyway, I started the next morning wanting to be his guy, and I started trying to do all the things they were telling me to do in that treatment center. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I headed over to my counselor's office. At, it was 11 o'clock meeting one morning. And he was working on my aftercare plan on a new and, uh, and I had a great attitude by that time. I was heading over there for the appointment with my own personal expressed purpose of assisting him. <laughs> if you don't know why that's funny, listen really close now, okay? Because this is real important. <laughs> and uh, I walked in there and explained to him, and I, so I was going to lay out the parameters for him, and explain to him that uh, I wasn't going to take an abuse, that I wasn't going to halfway house, and that they had a 28-day pre-treatment program, and I wasn't going to stay a minute longer. And I explained that to him with a very good attitude so he could, you know, work around. And um, when I finished, he said, is that it? I said, oh, yeah, that's it. He says, well, you've left out something you aren't going to. He says, you aren't going to make it. <laughs> that's what you get for having a good attitude, I guess. <laughs> Trying to help a guy along with his work, you know. And uh, in some extremely rough language, I asked him the question generally, Why'd you say that? And uh, he, he responded. He was a member of Al-Anon, by the way. I salute you. And he said, he asked me this fabulous question. He said, if you already know how to run a program to keep yourself sober, how is it you have to be a patient here? <laughs> and I said, huh? and nothing came out, and that had never happened to me before. I had always had an answer. I don't think it's happened since. I have an answer. Couldn't answer his question. Couldn't tell you how much longer I sat in his office. I think that transpired in the first five or six minutes. I think I stayed for the rest of the hour. But I don't remember any of the rest of that because my mind was wrestling the unanswerable questions. I left there and went to lunch, and through lunch, I wrestled the unanswerable question. And after that, all afternoon, my body went where it was supposed to be, you know, to group and coping skills and the movie and visit, whatever it was, body was there, mind is back in this man's office wrestling the unanswerable question. And I was walking at dusk. It was around, coming up on 9 o'clock at night. And I could show you within a couple of feet of where I was when I got the answer. Came the same place as that first prayer. I'm walking, and the answer goes and hits me right there. And the answer was and is, I don't know how to run a program to keep myself. And if I'm going to be one of the very few that make it, I'm going to have to do it all. This is not smorgasbord for me. I don't get to take what I want and leave the rest. My wager is too high. Everything in my life that means anything to me is wagered book.
It's wagered on my recovery is the most important thing I have because from it are suspended my relationship with this fabulous woman, my job, my house, my cars, uh, my freedom. I told you I'm supposed to be serving life. My sanity. I didn't tell you I woke up in the rubber room one time. Um, I know about that. I've been to the insane. Uh, my very life, how many times any of us could have been killed. Everything that means anything to me is suspended from my recovery. If I lose it, everything that means anything to me hits the floor. I'm not saying that's your situation. I'm saying so I don't get to play take what you want and leave the rest. My wager is too high. I've got too many chips on me. And at that point, when that realization hit me, I surrendered to what I lovingly call step one, section B. Oh, I was confused. I thought the word therefore appeared in the first step. So I said, middle we're powerless over alcohol, therefore our lives have become unmanageable. On close examination, I discover the word therefore is not in the first step. There's a dash in there, or a hyphen, which connects two separate thoughts. The reason I was confused is that on June the 27th of 1984, the fact that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was a disaster. Today, the fact that I am powerless over alcohol, my life is unmanageable, are not related. I don't find a place in the book after page 59 where it says my life's unmanageable that says congratulations, now having attained this high spiritual level, your life is now manageable by you once again. The tank is full, the keys are in it, have a good time. I can't find it. <laughs> Somebody can tell me what page that's on. I've been hunting it hard. <laughs> so the reality of the... But my life's no longer a disaster. So what I, what's happened is that I have fired me from management in my own enlightened self-interest. And I've invited God to be the manager of my life. He has a first sergeant we call ice cream. Yeah, that's my sponsor. And I do, and I do what the ice cream man says, and it's really, really simple. <laughs> Just really, really simple. When I surrender to my sponsor, what I do is I take my disease, which is still alive and well, living right in here. I take it out of all of the decision-making processes as they apply to me. When I surrender to my sponsor, just whatever he says goes, my disease doesn't get to argue with my recovery. It's interesting. Uh, Linda and I had an interesting life change not too long ago. She started playing bridge with her mother on Tuesday, and so she's automatically out on Tuesday night. So I went to the ice cream man. I said, I'm going to get off of that Thursday jail team because... We we're out different nights. And he said, well, that's fine, but I still want you in that particular jail. I, mean, I don't argue with him. I pick up the phone and call the people over at the jail. I said, we need to start a Tuesday night meeting. They said, fine, 8.15. So now we have a Tuesday night meeting in that particular facility, and that's how it started. I get somebody else to cover my Thursday night. So we, it is an attitude. I, I had the privilege of speaking at a conference in Mississippi a few years ago, and Don Roy is my immediate past sponsor, and he died with a lot of sobriety a, a few years ago. His... Uh, former wife Mary Jane to speak at them. And uh, when the ice cream man started sponsoring me, I said, now be careful with me, I'm going to surrender to you. You say it, I'm doing it. So don't, don't be leading me like a mallard. You don't have to get out in front of me. I'm going to do what you tell me. What is it? And he said, okay, on page 86 and 87, I want you to do this and this and this. One of the things that he gave me was the exact opposite of what Don Roy had me doing. Dead solid, 180 degree exact. And I spoke in Mississippi at a conference a year or so later, and I mentioned that from the podium. Steve heard the tape, and he says, I hear I've got you doing something exactly opposite what Don Roy has. He didn't ask me what it was, and I didn't tell him. The point is, I'm surrendered to my sponsor. Do it. And I think if I ever get to the point where I cannot approach him that way, then I've got to get another sponsor. When I, when I reach for the phone to call to ask him a question, I know if he says do it, I'll do it. If he says don't do it, I won't. Anyway, back to treatment. In the summer of 84, I zipped through the 28-day treatment program in six weeks. And... Uh, <laughs> I've always been quick, and uh, 
you guys have been sober so long you're doing math in your heads. I'm really impressed. And uh, went back to Nashville, and the only person I knew in recovery in Nashville who, that I'd known before owned one of the businesses that I called on, and I didn't want him to know. Newcomer thinking. There's nothing quite like it. I, uh, I set out to follow this aftercare plan that they had given me. Um, I never called any of my old drinking buddies. I did not allow my vehicle to turn for over two years. I'm serious. That was, that was the street that my home bar was on. My vehicle was not on that street until I had uh, I completed a four-step guide that the treatment center had. It was one of those psycho babble, do you still hate your mother, fill in the blanks, multiple choice. I'd like to recommend the actual four-step. <laughs> it's in this book. It looks to me, and Brother Luke seemed to think so too last night, as to be a series of lists, observations, and prayers. It was my experience in the, fourth, the actual four-step that it was the observations and prayers that made the changes. I hope you know what I'm talking about. I hope you get with somebody who because that was huge. The four-step wasn't about writing. There was writing involved, but it didn't for me. It was the observations that it called for and the prayers that made the changes. And, but anyway, I finished this psychobabble fill-in-the-blank thing, and I called back down to the treatment center. Bernie had not been my counselor. But when I had had my big spiritual experience, I realized I was going to have to do all this stuff, and I was really going to have to do a fifth step. And I had looked around at the staff for a likely candidate. The reason I selected Bernie was because you could look at him and tell he was stumped. <laughs> well, you know what it looks like. His face is relaxed, and he's got kind of this little grin, and he moves slow, and he tells me, well, this guy's ripped out of his mind. I'll do my fist up with him, and a week later, he won't remember what I said. He won't know if we did it. So I thought he'd be a great choice. So I called down to the treatment center to Bernie. Bernie said, sure, he'd be glad to. We booked an appointment. I drove to Na to, from Nashville to Atlanta by about four hours. Took my fist up with Bernie, where I began to get relief. And if, if you haven't done the steps, by the way, they looked to me initially like they'd been written by a hanging judge that was having a very bad day. <laughs> I mean, don't they look like they're designed to punish you when you first saw them? Or if you haven't done them, don't they look that way? That was just one of those things I was wrong about. My experience with the steps is that they gave me relief, that that's how I laid down my burden. It didn't look that way. And by the way, uh, about Bernie, uh, Bernie wasn't stoned. Bernie was sober over 20 years. That was serenity. I didn't know what it looked like. <laughs> Newcomer thinking, there's really nothing quite like it. I was, uh, and when I get back from that, I'm sober about four months at this time, and I've done, I've done everything on my aftercare list except get a sponsor. And the reason I hadn't got a sponsor is because I had this one more piece of insane thinking. Uh, oh, uh, the, one, the other thing I hadn't done, uh, I had tried to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, but I'd only been to 87 because there were three days it was just physically not possible with hospital emergencies with kids and stuff to be done. And I didn't know that you could go to two meetings in a day. <laughs> Newcomer thinking. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking, and I'm looking for a sponsor. And of course, the only thing that makes any sense to me is I'm going to look for a sponsor that I can, can you fill it in? Relate to, yeah. Is that hilarious? Have you ever heard anything dumber than that? I never have. I can't figure out you can go to two meetings in a day. Who can I relate to? Ah, I can relate to the squirrel on the next branch, some other jerk. That, that's who I can relate to. I didn't and don't need a sponsor I can relate to. I needed a sponsor I would obey. Concept I didn't have. And uh, anyway, there was this guy, and he was just lit up. And I went to him, and I said, would you sponsor me? And he said, sure, here's an assignment. Jerry sponsored by assignment. He said, here's an assignment. If you care, ask me later. It's kind of a long story, and I'm on a... And so I came back a week later. I said, Jerry, I did the assignment. He said, good, I'll sponsor. He said, you are too sick to stay sober on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Is that hilarious? Have you ever heard anything dumber than that? I never have. I can't figure out you can go to two meetings in a day. Who can I relate to? Ah, I can relate to the squirrel on the next branch, some other jerk. That does. That's who I can relate to. I didn't and don't need a sponsor I can relate to. I needed a sponsor I would obey. Concept I didn't have. And uh, anyway, there was this guy, and he was just lit up. And I went to him, and I said, would you sponsor me? And he said, sure, here's an assignment. Jerry sponsored by assignment. He said, here's an assignment. If you care, ask me later. It's kind of a long story. And, uh, and uh, so I came back a week later. I said, Jerry, I did the assignment. He said, good, I'll sponsor you my way. He said, you are too sick to stay sober on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You will need the program also. <laughs> and I don't know what we're talking about. Jerry outlived what the doctors said by over 10 years, and we buried him a few years ago. He said, the very best kept secret in our fellowship program. The way we keep it secret, we read it at every meeting. It's a sentence before the first step. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a... No steps, no program. Don't drink and go to meetings is not our program of recovery. We're killing people with that. Because I ask you a question. If sitting around with a bunch of other alcoholics talking about our problems is going to get people sober, wouldn't the guys under the bridge be sober? Hmm, wouldn't they? Wouldn't a lot of the guys and gals on the bar stools be sober? It's not it. Here are the steps we took. I looked at that. I said, so I was rigorously honest with him. I said, Jerry, I don't want to do the 12 steps. <laughs> Wait for this. Wait for this. And he said, that's okay. I said, good. He says, long as you do them. Jerry and I are graduates of the same college. I said, Jerry, we're not communicating, son. We're not. He said, he said, we are, too. He said, that's the definition of willingness. Willingness is when you do what your sponsor says, whether you feel like it or not. I can do things I don't feel like doing? That's correct. Because if doing what you wanted to do and felt like doing and not doing what you didn't feel like doing was going to get you sober, you'd have been sober a long time ago. So one of the givens, one of the automatics, is you're going to have to do some things you'd rather not do you're going to have to not do some things you'd probably like to do to get sober because the other way didn't work. Must be going to have to be this way. Oh, man. I didn't like that, so I said, why? <laughs> a couple lessons come real quick on that one. Uh, the first one I learned was that Jerry doesn't answer why questions for the men he sponsors. And he said, the reason is that step one, section B, says I'm not in management. And management is a why question. Second reason is... All of the why questions, therefore, have the same answer. And the answer is, you don't need to know. I wasn't very fond of that when I first got it, but it's one of the cornerstones for me today because I always thought it was not knowing that made me crazy. It wasn't. It was needing. Oh, definitely a management problem. But anyway, I said, why? This is the only why question the man ever asked for me. It's the only one I answered for the sponsor. And he said, think of yourself as a key. What we're going to do with these steps is we're going to dump you out. We're going to scrub the can and stand it back upright. We're going to fish through your life, and most of it is garbage, and we're going to throw it away, but some of it is good. That portion we will keep, he gave two examples. He said, do you love your children? I said, very much. He said, wonderful. Again, he said, when you go to work, you do a good job, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, we'll keep some of that. <laughs> when, when we get through with these steps, you're going to be a big, clean can with only about a little bitty bottle. 
Our program's kind of like going to the dentist. We've got to drill before we can fill. We're going to have to dig this poison out of you first. And that's what steps four through ten are about. They're about digging this poison out. Because if we just try to fill with good stuff on the top, that poison's still in there. It's going to get sicker and sicker. And I kept saying why, and he just, he just said, but he said, the reason that you need the big clean can is because alcohol's not your problem. It was. Had my first drink in the summer of 61 and my current one on June the 24th. Neither drink nor anyone in between is alcohol ever my problem, not once. But I belong to my answer. When they say to me, lay down booze, they're not saying lay down your problem. They're saying lay down the only answer you've ever known. The only thing that ever made your skin fit. The only thing that ever made it okay for you to be you. The only thing that allowed you to just get up in the morning and just function. The only answer you've ever known. Put that. That's what I was asked. And laying down the old one is not an answer. New answer. And the answer is I need to be a different guy and I don't have the power to change me. But I have the power to change what I do this day. And, and he said the reason that you need the big clean can with just a little good stuff in the bottom, he says something heavy is just going to slam into your heart one of these days. The example he gave, he said your father's going to... On that day, if you don't have the big clean empty, the little good stuff in the bottom to store that pain in while we live spiritual health, you will escape. Because that's what you are, you're an escape artist. You don't know how to handle it one day at a time. And when it comes and you can't handle it, escape. And the only escapes you know are killing you and devastating everything. And I just ran out of wine. And so I allowed the man to coach me through the... If you haven't done a four-step, I want to tell you something that helped me a lot. They said all that garbage in my four-step, that's not who you are, that's who you're not. If that's who you are, you're still out there doing it and bother you. The fact that it eats your guts up. And what we'll teach you here is how to quit doing who you're not and who you're from Denver that says the alcoholic is like an electromagnet that's been dragged through the junkyard of all this ragged, jagged stuff stuck all over. What we do with this step work is we very slowly turn off the power and all that junk drops away. I think the man saved my life. I want to tell you this story I'm about to tell you has a happy end. But on July the 4th, seven years and I found her, we think, about five hours later. We were at Vanderbilt Hospital within a half, uh, half hour after that, there were 20. I don't know how long that went on out. I choose these words well. The doctor said, first four days, your daughter will not live. And she's conscious. They got all these tubes stuck in her, and she's a I want to tell you something, four days is a very long time. And I believe if I had not allowed that man to coach me through escape, I found myself having to offer the most precious thing in you people were astonished. You put a 24-hour watch on me. And uh, there was no time during that 60-day period where there wasn't a member of my home group. At no time during that 60 days. And it wasn't to keep me from drinking. I'm so proud of you. We learned from Al-Anon not to trust the world. I know who you are by what you did. I'm a word merchant myself. She's lost a little coordination. Last fall, um, I guarantee you if I'm a street drunk, they mine. I sponsor a man whose son did not live. He was, he, he's still sober, but emotionally he was gone for, and he said it this way. He said, well, if you haven't done the steps out of this book, you're going to be called upon maybe to offer. Anyway, he said, the daughter's doing great. I started going to the old Woodbine Clubhouse in Nashville, and they had these slogans on the wall. One of them said, first things first. So I understand that, but I'm a newcomer, of course, I'm not doing it. And uh, they got another one that says, let go and let God. I thought that must be a really good idea. I wonder how they do that. And uh, another one said, one day at a time. I, I know what that one means. That means don't drink today. They're faking me out. They mean the rest of my life. But they're saying one day, okay, I'm going to play their game. It's working for them. I discovered later it meant a lot more than that. To me, a day at a time today means that if I've used the first 10 steps and cleaned up my past, there's nothing gaining on me. And then through steps 11 and 12, I get pretty excited about the idea that a loving God holds my future. 
clean past, loving God holds the future. Those two facts combine to free me to live one day at a time this day. If I don't have both those in place, I can't think. So again, that's what, for me, in part, what the step work is about. But they had another one up there that I looked at that thing and it just made thing. Think, 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 Oh, boy, did I have a busy head. And uh, I was going on in there. A, a friend of ours refers to his head as his home entertainment center. <laughs> Has everything it needs but an off switch. <laughs> I can't find that slogan in this book. I can't find it in the 12 and 12. I can't find it in literature. Took it upon myself to come up with a definition. Take what you can use and leave the rest, okay? What think, think, think means to me is three thinks is the limit, <laughs> okay? That's the maximum. Whatever it is, I can think about it once. That's okay. I can think about it twice. When I think about it the third time, I must lay it down. If I were going to outthink it, I would have outthunk it in three thinks. <laughs> if I go to the fourth think, I got a problem with step one, section B. I'm trying to manage it. How about that's giving me a lot of peace? That really has given me a lot of peace. And uh, as a matter of fact, to tell you the truth, every problem I have today falls under step one, section B. If I'm upset about it, it's because I'm trying to manage it. No matter what, from international politics to the way you drive your car to the fact that this fabulous woman that I'm married to puts the toilet paper on the roll backwards. <laughs> it should feed over the top, as you well know. Yeah, should be over the top. Let me, let me, wait, wait, wait. Let me tell you what her excuse is. Listen to this. She says she puts it on the other way because we have a cat. Let me tell you something. Been watching that cat for seven years. He does not use it. I was in a meeting in Chicago a couple of years ago, a little club called the Mustard Seed, and this girl said something I hated, and so I had to take it in and look at it. She said, my priorities are not what I say they are, my priorities are what I do. If I want to know what my priorities are, I don't listen to my words about the future. I look at my actions in the recent past. If it got done, it was a priority. If it didn't get done, it wasn't a priority. And anything I say to the contrary is a lie, I'm telling me. And I didn't like that when I first heard it. But I love it now, and I think that's why the evening half of the 11th step is so to me. is for me to look each night and see what my priorities are. My, uh, my spirit's kind of like my body in that it needs a very bad. For me to be healthy, I have got to pray, talk to my sponsor, talk to the men that I sponsor. I read two pages a day in the big book, and uh, at that rate I read the book four times a year. Um, put your blinker around near me and travel. I have to do those things. To, to have a spiritual contest to be. My sponsor told me that I don't have, he said, if you're working on your character defects, you are living. The steps six and seven don't say a thing about you working on And he said, all my character defects are self-centered by definition, and that self doesn't have the power to push self out of the center. If it did, it would. So the answer to my character defects is for me to do the things on a daily basis that create for me a godsend. And I've got three things that, uh, that I call my spiritual barometer, and it was uh, swearing, Lying, and my attitude toward those of you jack boxes. And, and uh, Sears used to sell them in parts of the country. Anyway, um, if I would look, if one of those would get out of whack, if I take a look, they're all out. And the answer isn't for me to, you know, get duct tape and stop me from swearing at you in traffic. The answer is for me to look back over the last few days. How many meetings? I left that out. How many AA meetings am I attending? When's the last time you were in the jail? When's the last time you talked to newcomers? And if I, what's your meditation looking like? If I look back over the last few days, there are holes. 
what I do is plug those holes. I don't work on my attitude towards you in traffic. I go back to doing the things that create for me. And three days later, you can cut me off and almost hit me. And I will smile at you from deep in my soul. I will wave at you with my entire hand. <laughs> Whole hand wave, smile, and say, God, go with that when he needs some help today, and mean it. And I can't change me from the maniac three days before. But if I do the things that need for me for me. When I was new, I used to say all kinds of insane things. I mean, what does that really mean? When I say I'm having a good day, what am I saying? I'm saying my will is being done today. When I say I'm having a bad day, what am I saying? My will is not being done today. My will is the biggest problem I got, or there are quite a few mistakes in this book. So I need to step out. Part of the third step is for me to step out of the judgment business. Stop playing God. I don't need to judge these things as good or bad. If you had asked me on my first day sober what kind of day I was having, it would have taken me an hour to tell you, and the air would have been that day. I need to stop judging those things. Because when I stop, stop judging those things, I stop being angry. You know what the ugliest thing in the world is? I can tell you, it's me when I'm right. Oh, oh there's nothing uglier. I, I try to remember, it says, some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas. I'm convinced that everything I learned through noon yesterday is now an old idea. And if I can hold it in an open hand, I can build on it. I'll give you an example from my own experience. Uh, when I was sober two years, I quit one day that a loving God sends that guidance every day to clear a gift. What I pray for is that I might be well, if I close my hand on that, I can't go to, maybe there's another level beyond that. So as soon as I get right about something, what happens is I block my own ability to learn. It also gives me permission to judge you, be angry with you, try to train you. And, oh, just nothing good comes out of that. There's nothing uglier than me when I'm right. And if I take a look at me, most of the times when I'm angry, it's because I'm, it, it helps me a lot. And I don't learn from my mistakes. They lied to me about that too. They say, we learned from our mistakes. Well, I never did. What I learned from is living with the results of my mistakes. That's at least in part what steps four, five, uh, eight, nine are about. It's about me embracing the results of my mistakes. I'm like the dog that wets on the rug. What did he learn? When did he start learning? When you rubbed his nose in it. I'm the same way. It's, and, and what I do is, with these steps is I embrace the results of my mistakes. And consequently, when I'm about ready to make that mistake again, I don't think, oh, gee, that was a mistake last night. <laughs> I personally hate amends worse than communism. And uh, I don't want to make any more amends. And so when I come across something like that, that's what, what I remember. It isn't the mistake, it's, it's living with the mistake. I heard uh, a guy in a meeting one time define freedom. He said, freedom is when I accept I'm free. I'm free to do anything I'm prepared to live. And that's in part what the step work is about. So that I can learn to make that... Don't get confused, I am not St. Scott. I am still making mistakes. But living what's in this book, doing these things to the best of my willingness, not the best of my willingness, but I am still making mistakes. But I'm making a much finer quality mistake than I ever made before. <laughs> truly, truly. We have a name for that, right? We call that progress. <laughs> it's not my job to be perfect. In my own particular religious beliefs, the job of being perfect is taken. There's not even an address where you can mail a resume. They don't want to interview you. Consequently, it must be my job to make mistakes. And what I do is make the mistake, ask God for help here, help me learn the lesson, help me clean up, help me not make this mistake again so I can move on. That may not mean a thing to you, but that's given me tremendous freedom because when I got my own permission to make mistakes, um, I want to talk about something that's just recent. It just keeps shouting at me, so I need to do it. And it's this concept of trying to sponsor somebody that won't let, them, that won't let you. My sponsor does not allow me to work with men who will not do what I ask them to do. Now, I don't want to manage his life.
Step one, section B says, my life's unmanageable. I can't manage, our insurer can't manage his. But I can help him explore options. And I can lay out for him this simple kit of spiritual tools. And I can coach him through using these tools at the pace that I think makes sense based on him. If he won't do that, I'm not helping him. This is page 95. If he is not interested in your solution, the expected spree, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This is page 96. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who, if you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he can. It has been necessary for me this year to fire four newcomers, and I'm sick about it. I'm very sad about it. But I want to tell you why I have to do that. The book said it in two places. My sponsor told me, if you're working with a guy and he's not doing what you say, you're not his sponsor. No, you're his fire chief. He calls you, he siphons off some of your serenity, he puts out his smoldering tail feathers, and goes right back to doing it his way. If he's not doing it your way, you're not his sponsor, he is. And you're co-signing a lie. In the second place, he said, do you think you could... He said, you're probably right, and he probably can't eat. And when he drinks again, and he probably will, when he wakes up face down in a pool of blood and vomit in a, in a time, you want him to have three options open. So you must tell him that until he has gotten a sponsor, it doesn't have to be you, until he's gotten a sponsor who's actually done these 12 steps and allowed that sponsor to coach him through these 12 steps, he is not in Alcoholics Anonymous and don't think he is. And that's what I have to tell him when I fire him. Because when he wakes up in that jail cell the next time, I want him to have three options, and here they are. Continue to live that way. Take his own life and actually try Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I don't tell him the truth that he hasn't tried AA because he wouldn't do the 12 steps, I have signed his death warrant. I hate to be controversial because I know that is, but that's how it looks to me. And I think it's critically, critically important. My sponsor does not allow me to work with men that don't ask. I'm sponsoring a lot of guys. I do not allow them to work with men that don't winners. And we are not having a lot of, I'm not holding myself up as an example. I'm holding this book up as an example. I am running thin on time. I want to tell one more piece of my story that has been important to some other people. Um, I hope this doesn't offend anyone. I really sincerely do. And if you've done what I'm about to describe, I'm, uh, that worst thing that I ever did was I paid for an abortion. And uh, that's what I was thinking about that night in the treatment center. And, and I knew I'd been forgiven, but when I got to the ninth step, it occurred to me, some people cannot be seen. We send them. I was sat down outdoors under God's sky, not indoors, piece of paper. Now, by this time, I had learned to, to cry. If you can't cry, don't try this. Uh, a man in my home group had coached me for over a year so that I could learn to cry, and I've cried here a couple times, and that's fine. And by the way, if, if that gives you, I'm okay with it. I hope you like me. I really do. Cherry Carpenter was one of the deans of but anyway, I had to learn to cry because I can cry. And I teach it, by the way. If anybody needs to learn to cry, see me later. I can help you. But uh, I'm serious. I'm serious, and there'll be some. But anyway, I was sat down, and I was, I was handed a piece of paper and told to write a letter, men's letter, Dear Unborn Child. And if you write the D on dear and start crying, we can. As the fourth step was not about writing, for me, it was the opposite. For me, in this experience, it has been not the writing that made the changes, and if you're going to want to write and cry at the same time, and it may be not an unborn child, it could be a parent, it could be anybody that's gone to the other side. But if you write and cry at the same time, you compress the time frame and it doesn't. But I sat and wrote and cried, and as soon as I cried, it made me lay the pen down. And when I finally said, I think I'm finished, love dad, I was not finished. I was handed a plain white envelope, child's in heaven with God. I don't find anything in my book that tells me how to hear a fifth step. So I'll, and I only started telling this piece from the post. But there was a fellow I've been sponsoring for a lot of years, and I had heard his step. Consequently, he knew about a man who had this problem. He got that man's permission, called me, and said, us, he needs to write a letter, and I don't have the uh, When he was finished, and I handed him the plan, which my job, by the way, when you're writing is to pray.
not to destroy it, but the book doesn't say they are, I think I can send it better in smoke. I serve a powerful God. Gave me a powerful program. I don't have the power to make a mistake. He can't every time I get a chance to do this. Powerful, powerful God. A friend of mine said, God forgives me for everything. I walked out of a meeting a couple of years ago and a, a fellow who sponsor, I sponsor, stopped. What I had said in the meeting was, my amends to my children would never be complete. And he said to me, did you go to them? Did you tell them what you thought you did wrong? Did you ask them what you could do to make it right and do that? Did you ask for their... He said, you're trying to be the best dad you can be today. And if you think it's ninth step work, you're still their forgiveness or God's or your own. And I believe that's right. And if you're doing living amends, it's okay with me. But I'm trying to be the best dad I can. Um, at my home group, we stopped uh, giving our... We exchange. We exchange phone numbers with newcomers. And we call them just a couple times. A couple of times. This thing about the hand of AA always to be there. Close enough. When I was sober 100 days, I bet I had 100 phone numbers. Nothing for me was 17 years to pick up the phone. You yesterday at the backroom group, uh, I talked to five or six guys every day who are in recovery. You're on today's list. I'm going to the fellowship group tonight. Meets at 8 o'clock, Presbyterian Church on Nolan's Road. Can you be there? And we'll have a cup of coffee. I got a sign like. That's nothing for me to do that. Wonder how many lives might. You know, I belong today. And I belong in this room. There. I figure this many people invite on the holy ground. And I've tried to carry that in my heart. And uh, this old guy sitting over there with his chair rocked back in the back legs and the scowl, and he's like, that. In case I can't wait. And they got to him. And he said, I've just come back from an ancient ritual, from a medieval ceremony where 10,000 people sat in an auditorium wearing long robes. I figured it out. That's graduation, University of Tennessee. Okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. That's commencement at UT. I got it. The guy's a professor there. He said, Alex Haley was the featured speaker. He talked a lot around Middle Tennessee later. And Alex Haley was not talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. But this guy said Alex Haley's first few sentences reminded him so much of AA that he forgot about the air conditioning and the robes and sat there and was grateful for his program. What Alex Haley said that I think defines us better, if you ever see a turtle sitting up on top of a fence post, you'll know he's had help. <laughs> God bless you. I thank you for the help. Let's uh, close with the Lord's Prayer.